You are listening to the Independent Dealer Podcast with hosts Luke Godwin and Jeff Watson. Hello and welcome to the Independent Dealer Podcast brought to you by Buckeye Dealership Consulting. This week, Luke, we are talking legislative policy updates. I'm actually in D.C. right now. You wouldn't know it by the boring background I've got, but but I'm in D.C. for another uh, legislative rally. But it got us thinking. We haven't talked to our good friend Sean Peterson in a really long time. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Sean uh, is is the guy when it comes to what's going on in D.C., what the car dealers need to do to just be aware of the policies that that crazy legislation may lead to or just, uh, you know, the wrong the wrong group in, in lead in D.C. can lead to a bunch of uh, craziness for us car dealers. So, Sean, thanks for being with us. This is probably like your 20th time on the Independent Dealer Podcast. We really appreciate it. How's it going, buddy? I'm doing fantastic. So do I get a frequent flyer punch card? Like if, uh, you know, 20 appearances, get one free kind of a thing? Is that? I think, yeah, I think so. I think we can do that. <laughs> uh, you know, we always go to the smartest guys. So that's, it's definitely something to be said. When, when we need good, accurate information, we call up Sean. Uh, it's right. always great to be with you guys. I appreciate the invitation. Well, uh, Sean, what, what should we be worried about? What's the top thing we should be worried about right now? Well, there's so much that's going on. It's interesting to me, you know, from a political standpoint, maybe it's it's good to kind of set up a politics right now, right? So, you know, we we have a, a Democrat-controlled White House. Everybody knows that. We have a split uh, Congress, right? We have a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. We have a Democrat-controlled Senate. Now, interestingly enough, you know, I have a couple of senators on the Democrat side that have battled some health issues. Uh, so... You know, nothing's really happening from a Senate perspective in large part because it's hard to call up votes when you have a couple of, of folks on the bench that could ultimately swing the, the vote the other way. So there's just not been a lot of activity in the Senate. And, and, and on the House side, you've, you've got a, a, an active House of Representatives that's really kind of an investigation mode and oversight and hearing uh, mode is they kind of pull apart some of the things that they've disagreed with over the past couple of years of, of a Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. So there, there's not much that's going to happen, I don't think, from a congressional standpoint. But, but why I say that is it's important to know that, in my opinion, that's actually going to embolden the agencies that we deal with, right? So and we've actually seen a lot of activity. So what's the most important thing going on? Man, that's hard, hard to tell because there's, there's so much that, that's going on by way of proposed rules by way of agency enforcement actions. Let me start with this one, though, because I think this is an interesting one for for the the listeners on this particular podcast. We know that we've all been battling the CFPB for a very long time, right? At least 10 years, right? Yeah, the Mm CFPB has been in existence now for about 12 years. And Part of the challenge, those of you that have have been with us to to Washington in years past, where we have taken issues uh, about the CFPB's organization and and whether it's constitutionally structured properly, Uh, there's been a lot of um, legislation that's been proposed that would, you know, create a a, a rejigger the the Bureau so that you have a, a bipartisan commission of multiple commissioners as opposed to one director that they have now. 
uh, and have a uh, a budget that's subject to congressional appropriations, like almost every other agency. Right? We battled that issue a lot. Never got anywhere congressionally. Right? It would the Democrats just weren't in favor of it. Let it go. The Republicans, uh, you know, could never get things over the finish line across. You know, all the way across the board. So there's been some significant court challenges in the past, right? The CFPB here several, or sorry, see the Supreme Court several years ago uh, had a case that um, the issue of whether or not this this one bureau or one director in charge of the bureau was, was something that was constitutional or not, and ultimately they said, not really, but we're going to allow one director. He just cannot you know, have these protections that were originally built in where he could not be removed. And so we know that that case is, has has finalized. We we still have the one director model, but he can be fired by the president at will like any other, uh, you know, cabinet head, so to speak. But the Supreme Court here in the last couple of months has, has taken up the second issue as to whether or not the CFPB is constitutional based upon this funding mechanism. So right now, the CFPB's budget is just given to them as a portion of the, the Fed's budget, right? So here's a chunk of money, go do your thing. And the, and, and the opponents to that model say, well, there's no oversight, there's no control, there's no, you know, the people don't have a say what's going on. Whereas virtually every other government agency is subject to Congress, you know, appropriating the money, saying, all right, we're going to give you this. And you guys both have kids. I have kids. <laughs> Luke's kid is, you know, getting to this point now where you get to teenager mode. And Jeff will relate to this, right? What's the number one way to, you know, kind of control the kids these days? Probably well, social media, I would think. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take away your money, right? It's, you know, you can have the phone. Oh, yeah. Well, sure. I'm not going to pay for that anymore. There's no way, right? Especially as the kids get older. Hey, dad, you know, can you? Well, that's ultimately what, what we've got going on here right now is, is Congress, the House Republicans especially, want to be able to say, no, 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 no. We get to decide whether or not you get the money or not. So um, the Supreme Court has had oral arguments on that case. Uh, a lower court found that the the organization and the funding mechanism is unconstitutional. The CFPB appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to take the case. And we expect a ruling sometime here in the next uh, probably six weeks. Uh, usually, these big rulings are released in June, so it will be very interesting to see what happens with the current court structure and that decision. I I would expect. What? If I'm shaking my crystal ball, I would expect that you there's a strong possibility this court will say it's not a constitutional mechanism. Then the issue becomes well, what happens to the bureau, right? That's that's what I was about to ask. I mean, what if that is actually come come to pass? I mean, does it shut down immediately or does funding stop? What what can happen? Well, I, I that's gonna be interesting. You know, the 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 attorneys that I've talked to that are kind of watching all this with me. Uh, you know, we have differences of opinion as to whether or not, you know, it's, it's what's the remedy? How, do, how does the court fashion a remedy? I would be absolutely shocked, beyond shock, if the Bureau goes away. Uh, so I could certainly see a mechanism where uh, 
in essence, the, the past actions of the Bureau are in essence ratified, you know, tacitly by the Supreme Court. I don't know that they'll ever come out and say, you know, so let it be written, so let it be done, that everything in the past is legit now because, but I think that you'll have some kind of a, uh, a remedy. Again, this is just me shaking a ball. I think you'll have some kind of remedy where the court will say, hey, that's unconstitutional. Uh, funding has to be subject to appropriations um, like any other mechanism or, or any other agency out there, or most of the other agencies anyway. And uh, the Bureau will just continue to go on and, and then it becomes the battle as to whether or not there's funding. Hey everyone, sorry for breaking in, but we've got to tell you about Buckeye. We've got uh, Sean Buckeye Peterson with us today. And let me tell you, um, Buckeye really cares about the dealer. Jeff, we've talked about this before. It's not only helping you with your reinsurance, it's making sure you're doing it the right way. Everything's set up properly. And here, right after tax day, what we can tell you is if you had to stroke a big check Tuesday, then you should know that one way to help defer some of those taxes is to set up your reinsurance company. Yep, definitely. Talk to the guys at Buckeye. Uh, get that reinsurance set up and save yourself some tax money this year. Before before the CFPB, I mean, who was that oversight? Uh, who, who who handled that? Because I, I just remember, I mean, maybe when I first got involved with, you know, with NIADA and everything, that it was big. It was the first thing. Before that, who had oversight over what was going on um, with with lenders? Yeah, so most of most of that sort of stuff fell into two things. Right on the consumer protection side of it, you know, regulating the dealership and the trans motor vehicle transaction itself, the FTC largely had jurisdiction for for big, you know, banking sorts of issues and lending sorts of issues that depended on what kind of, of financing entity you were. There's uh, entities, um, OCC is an entity, there's the, the, the Fed, the Federal Reserve Board, you know, all those sorts of things, depending on where you, you fell into your organization, banks would come here and other finance companies may come over here. And it depended on what the transaction was. And part of the reason the CPB came to existence is because there was this perceived lack of clarity or lack of, of pinpoint accuracy of you're doing this and you're doing that and we're going to tighten things up. Did this stem from the the uh, the housing crisis in, in 08? I mean, is that where that came from? A large part of it, that was kind of the jumpstart to a lot of this was, or finalizing it, right? This is a brainchild that had been around. Elizabeth Warren had been working on this for years prior to the, the, the at least the concept, years prior to the, to the mortgage crisis. But that certainly was the accelerant to get things done. Do we, do we feel like, the last, you know, two months of banking, semi-banking crisis will lead to some more power from the CFPB or from other agencies because of this? I don't think you'll see anything, again, from a congressional standpoint, I don't think you'll see that in large part because you've got divided government. But I do think, again, these sorts of real-time issues are what embolden the agency to take specific actions. And if you see what the CFPB has done here, in the last six months, uh, there's been some interesting things from uh, from an enforcement side, from a uh, rulemaking perspective. I'll give you a couple of different examples here, just in the last two weeks or three weeks. Uh, those of us that have been around for a while, we we've heard this concept of of UDAP, right? Unfair, deceptive, and abusive acts and practices, right? Every state has some version of what we call UDAP statute. 
federal government has now had created that in the form of what the FTC can do and what the CFPB can do uh, by giving it various UDAP authority. One of the things that has always been an amorphous thing is this idea of, well, what's abusive? State level, that concept never really had, had existed before. At the FTC level, it never had really existed before. But when Dodd-Frank created the CFPB and gave them UDAP authority, they created that extra A. Not only did they have uh, unfair deceptive, they then added this abusive, but it had never been defined. So here the CFPB in the last couple of weeks put out a guidance document and I'm all for guidance. I think guidance is good uh, when it's reason. And they put out this guidance document that some would argue isn't reasoned. Um, it, it tries to define what abusive is. And it you know, includes things like, if, you know, if you're hiding things, if you're playing shuffleboard with with terms and you know um, explanations are unclear, those sorts of things, right? That you're you're putting yourself in a position where you're truly taking advantage of of a consumer because you're in a higher bargaining position. Let's say those sorts of things. The issue um, ultimately comes down to the, the the objection that a lot of people have to the statement is. Again, it comes down to who's the prosecutor, right? The CFPB director is ultimately going to be the one to say, I think that's abusive. And, it, and it, even though they try to put some parameters around that, it ultimately becomes a, well, we think this is abusive, so we're going to go with it, uh, you know, a whim, whim kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that plays out in enforcement actions. One of the other things that um, we've seen here over the last couple of months from the CFPB is really stepping up uh, a couple of key issues will be really important for buy here, pay here dealers. Um, the CFPB has in their supervision and, and examination of banks and, and, and larger finance companies that they have the ability to go in and rip apart books and kind of check out every angle of the operation. We call that supervision. Under their supervisory authority, they've they've pointed out we've seen some of these banks and finance companies make some mistakes in how they repo vehicles, improperly repo repoing vehicles when they shouldn't have been doing that. Uh, they specifically pointed out to you know several instances and in reports that they released, and they don't name names of, of banks. They just say here's the issue that we spotted. You know, particular finance company may have made a deal with the consumer and, uh, you know, agreed not to repo. And that message doesn't get back to the repo agent. Target's taken anyway. We have problems. Um, the other thing that we've seen in that particular world is an improper credit of FNI product cancellation. So, for example, if there's a service contract or that can or a gap particular product and, and there's a credit due to the consumer, either hasn't been given, inaccurately given, those sorts of things. They're starting to ramp up on, on those issues. Last thing that, that I'll mention, which is very interesting and kind of speaks a little bit, I think, to the hubris of the, uh, the CFPB in a lot of people's eyes is they, they issued a, a proposed rule I affectionately call this the tattletale rule. 
but they, they, they are proposing a rule that would require certain entities, again, that they have supervisory control over to, in essence, report on themselves. You got to tell the CFPB when you screwed up, whether it was intentional or unintentional, and you're subject to some kind of court order or state administrative action or something like that, you have to tell us all the sorts of things that you've done wrong. Well, debate is that create constitutional issues, but you know, we all have kids. How many of our kids are going to come and tell us that they screwed up, right? Hey, everybody, real quick. Um, buy here, pay here, United. If you jump online right now, the day you're listening to this and get signed up, you can still make it out to Vegas with us at the end of the month and have a good old time rubbing it's, shoulders. It's going to be great. Jeff and I are going to be there. We do a lot of interviews. We look forward to seeing everyone there. We want you to come up to us, say hello, get on the camera. You'll be famous like we are. And uh, <laughs> but buy here, pay here, united.com. It's the summit at Bellagio. Sean says there's still a couple cheap hotels left if you need them. So reach out. Let's get it done. So, you know, I, I've always argued like, okay, we should we should pay attention to this, Sean, and I, I get it. And we've spent a lot of time in Washington uh, talking to CFPB and, and, you know, talking to the legislators, trying to get this, you know, I guess, right-sized. How, how much should a buy-here-pay-here dealer who has 2,000 or less accounts, I mean, or maybe 1,000 or less accounts, should we really worry about the CFPB knocking on our door tomorrow? Aren't there bigger fish to fry? Uh, that's a great question. I'll tell you, Luke, that, that we've actually seen the CFPB um, take some shots at smaller dealers, right? There was a case many years ago uh, out in Colorado with a smaller buy here, pay here dealer. Is, the, is it likely that the CFPB itself is going to come knocking on the door? Mm, not probably very likely. But what happens is when the CFPB creates these big, broad concepts, right? What is abusive? And, and then they put together proposed rules or they even take enforcement action. We talked about this concept uh, years ago when the CFPB was first born. Uh, we called it um, regulation by enforcement. You may have heard mm -hmm. me say that in the past, right? In yep. essence, they would, they would take a, 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 a lot of times a company that really couldn't defend itself, put them under some kind of a consent decree, and then broadcast to the world, we did this, and now we expect everybody else to, to live up to the same kind of, you know, prescriptions and, and requirements that we put into this order for this particular company. We're starting to see some of that. We feel like that's coming up uh, again. So we may not, you may not see the, the CFPB itself knock on the door, but state attorneys general that rely upon what the CFPB do, that's a, a, a stronger likelihood plaintiff's attorneys that rely upon what the CFPB has done. That's an even stronger likelihood. So the one thing I, I want to make sure that dealers understand is just because you yourself may not be, you know, in the crosshairs of, of the federal agencies, this would be true of the FTC as well. That doesn't mean that I don't have to make compliance an important part of what I do because what happens around you locally, right? We all know plaintiff's attorneys that are circling nearby, the state attorneys general, consumer protection agencies, others circling nearby that will be ready to pounce if you don't do it right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's the real rub. I mean, it, all of us have to worry about our state, uh, like in Texas, OCCC or, or in South Carolina, Department of Consumer Affairs, 
we have to worry about those agencies. But what really scares me is a plaintiff attorney all of a sudden coming in because I didn't refund something right on a repo and just hammering me across the board uh, with a class action. I mean, there are protections, uh, arbitration agreements and things like this, but I mean, that's where people should be worried. Uh, yeah. What I find is I never want to be, I never want to be doing something that I see in the headlines, right? Because yeah. like if, it, if it's in the headlines and it's in the news, those are like the hot topics. They're like the whack-a-moles that, you know, some regulator, or some plaintiff attorney is going to get into. So if I'm the one participating in, you know, uh, dealer markups, or if I'm participating in, you know, abusive products, backend products, or all these little things that you see kind of coming up in the news right now is like where dealers are, quote unquote, taking advantage of consumers. I just want to make sure I'm as far away from that as possible. You know, dotting my I's, crossing my T's, uh, abusive interest, abusive repo practices, data breaches, like all and, the stuff I don't want to be anywhere near. And, well, and these and these fees, right? They're, they're real, FTC is really worried about fees. Well, so mm -hmm. it, it's interesting you talk about fees because that seems to be the buzzword of, of the administration right now, right? Junk fees. I mean, I've, I've seen the president refer to junk fees in, you know, these little impromptu press conferences that he does on the on the South Lawn before he gets on Marine One to where, wherever he's headed, right? I've, but we've seen that, that term pop up in the FTC's nomenclature. We've seen that term pop up in the CFPB's nomenclature. And you know, I'm sure that's something that will will continue to 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 be around because, look, one of the things that you know, it, both in politics and in law, you know, you're going to grab onto things that will make make your argument sound sexier, right? And that's oh, these are junk fees. Well, let's build something around that. And, and interestingly enough, you know, uh, the, the CFPB's got some definitions of what, you know, and, and again, it's all loose stuff where they've kind of woven this into some of the things that they've done. The FTC here in September, or excuse me, I guess it was last summer, comments were due in September. There's a, uh, a proposed rule that the, C that the FTC is working through right now that will apply to car dealers. Now, I'm going to come back and kind of cover who it really applies to, because I think there's some, some loopholes that are interesting, but they proposed a, uh, a rule that's intended to cover kind of the, the entire scope of the automobile transaction. And it's, um, it's really a, a swing and a miss in so many different ways because they just don't understand the complexities and nuances that go into the transaction. When they released this proposed rule, again, aimed at trying to curb these junk fee concepts that they're trying to shove certain legitimate things into this concept of, well, that's a junk fee or has to potentially be a junk fee. Um, that when they released this proposed rule, they, they were, they're trying to do it under the guise of, well, you know, we're going to make the, the customer buying experience better, clearer, shorter, that sort of stuff. And when the, what they put together and released does nothing of the sort. There, this proposed rule would require dealers to jump through significantly more hoops, right? It'll be more paperwork for the consumer to sign. It'll be more disclosure documents. It'll be, you know, how long does the normal closing take for you guys, right? You know. Yeah, I, 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah. If you could do it in 30 minutes, I think everybody's doing cartwheels, right? This has the potential to... Double it? Everybody's, 
Luke's going to interrupt me interrupting you and interrupting the podcast. Primal <laughs> End, guys, great sponsor of the podcast uh, and a place to go to get your money. Yeah, everybody needs cash. I know that. Yeah, who's got my week, money? Last week, I had to go get some cash. Um, the better your business is running and buy here, pay here, the more cash you will need. And mm. Primal End is a place that can really help you uh, get your books in order, get your dealership purchased from the guy you're renting it from now. Uh, or just get you cash to buy more vehicles so you can get your portfolio uh, the right size. Yeah, even if you're a retail dealer, right? Yeah. They lend they lend to all, all dealers. So definitely the folks to talk to over Primal End. Uh, back to the episode. It's, it's, it's longer. This is no lie. And I, I've closed on some property and some different loans lately. It, took, it takes longer to do a car loan and car sale than it does to buy a $3 million piece of property. And I'm sure they're going to make it worse, right? Yeah, 100%. So I'll give you a specific example. One of the things that they're they're going to require if this rule goes through as is, is you have to disclose, and they, they have this defined term called the offering price. So, the, and it's the full cash price at which you're going to sell or finance the vehicle minus these, you know, any government fees, taxes, that kind of stuff. So you have to disclose the offering price Pretty immediately. So the, the FTC tries to disclose when. Well, and they, they put things out there. Well, you have to disclose it in any ad that references a particular vehicle, any ad that represents a monetary amount or of a, of a financing term, any communication with the consumer going back and forth about those sorts of things. So if you have the little chat bot on your website, let's say, for example, right? Hey, I'm interested in, well, boom, there's that offering price has to be given, uh, customer calls you up or sends a text message to, to the, boom, you have to, and if they start to do that on, well, I'm interested in, you know, F-150. I'm interested in, you have four F-150s on the lot. Well, you have to provide this at four times. But if you provide it in writing, it must be disclosed in writing and the customer has to sign it. I got it. Well, yeah, you know, just <laughs> more paperwork that just that doesn't have anything. Here's another thing that's interesting about this particular proposal is you'll have to create what we call an, an add-on list or what the FTC is calling an add-on list, right? So if you have various FNI products, voluntary protection products that you're offering. You have to provide an entire list of all of that stuff. But here's where it really gets, from a definition standpoint, bogged down. If you're in the weeds of, you know, well, I shouldn't say, let me rephrase it. If you're offering not just F&I products, but you have other, let's just say, aftermarket sorts of things that you're going to sell the customer, right? Mud flaps, you know, F-150, the, the you know, nice little spotlights or whatever the you know the bumpers yeah everything. all that kind Under, of undercoating right? yeah you name it gotta list it your add-on your add-on list has to have that and that has to be published and you have to keep that up to date it hmm. just becomes a, a an administrative and, and paperwork nightmare um and it's all based on this idea of getting expressed informed consent right we want the consumer this is the ftc talking we want the consumer to have expressed informed consent on all the things that they're buying and and participating in and and re well you have to provide that again like i said every single time 
So your deal jacket that was 25 pages before. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Think about how many more times, how many documents that are going to go in there. Um, it's, it's a challenge. And here's what's interesting. And, and, and to me, one of the ultimate issues with this proposed rule, the FTC, and, and I'll, I'll talk, at, talk about it from the context of let's say you're going to offer a vehicle service contract, part of the deal. So you outline the terms of a vehicle as it stands now, right? You outline the terms of a vehicle service contract. You provide that document to the consumer. They have an opportunity to read it and they're signing, right? I understand. And, and I've had an opportunity to read and this is not condition of financing. All the sorts of things that go in there, they have, they have that, you have a signed document that says, I understand. I have a chance to read it, blah, 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 blah. The, C, the FTC in this proposed rule says, guess what? That document that they signed voluntarily isn't enough by itself to establish express informed consent. <laughs> what? Well, what is? <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, here's what they say. It has to be, and again, parsing this language is going to be interesting. Um, it has to be an affirmative act communicating unambiguous assent to be charged. And it has to be made after receiving in close proximity to any disclosure in writing and also orally. So if a mm. consumer was to challenge you, well, I never provided express informed consent. And by the way, the FTC specifically says that like in the rule, that signed document isn't enough, right? You can't have pre-checked boxes. That doesn't count as express informed consent. So a customer comes in here and says, well, I never gave express informed consent on that. And you hold up the document and say, well, yeah, you did. You signed right here. Oh, mm. no, I didn't give it orally. How are you going to prove? I, I mean, you, you have to record everything? Everything. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be... There's so many issues that, that this rule presents, again, from a, from a cost perspective, the impact it's going to have on dealers and their compliance mechanisms, the impact it's going to have on the consumers. This is a, a, a fatally flawed uh, document. NADA, if anybody's interested in, in the world listening to this, NADA put out a couple of little video vignettes that talk about the the, the downsides to this rule and how this really was a ready fire aim kind of approach. Um, it, it's, it's poor. It's just a poor effort. And here's what really makes it poor and interesting. I, I mentioned I'd come back and tell you, well, who does it apply to? The, it applies to motor vehicle dealers, but look at how, listen to how they define motor vehicle dealers, which, and if you're familiar with the, the CFPB Dodd-Frank Act, it talks about motor vehicle dealers being got to be licensed. Okay, well, everybody here is licensed, curb stoners, and maybe, you know, you know, again, that helps the curb stoning argument. Yeah, that doesn't apply to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, has to be licensed dealer that takes title to vehicles and is predominantly engaged in sale and servicing of motor vehicles or leasing and, and servicing of motor vehicles. Now, from an independent dealer perspective, how many independent dealers are not primarily engaged in servicing? It says both, right? Sale and servicing, leasing and servicing. So if you're not engaged in servicing, well, then there's an argument this rule doesn't apply to you. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So here's the, here's the issue. 
if the FTC understood things, one, would we have a better rule that that is doable? But two, would it really cover the people that they intended? There's no way, in my opinion, that they ever intended to exclude dealers that don't have servicing departments. Um, Another reason to have uh, your service department separate from your dealership. There you go. <laughs> like I, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. So interesting to kind of circle back to where Jeff's at right now and this idea of, of being in D.C. And, and talking about important issues. This is why you got to be in D.C. and talk about these sorts of things, right? So that we don't have regulations, whether they're, you know, on the books now or proposed regulations that just miss the mark. Because look what's going to happen, right? Does the CFPB, and this, this is just me throwing things against the wall, does the CFPB come back later and say, oh, well, the FTC only went so far. We have control over buy here, pay here dealers. We're going to do something that's specific to buy here, pay here that's similar to this. Does the FTC come back and, and clean up some things? Yeah. I, who knows? Um, all sorts of all sorts of issues with that particular and, one. And that is the reason dealers out there listening, if you made it this far, that we have to stay involved and we have to uh, you know, give money to the pack because these things are super important. And Sean, I know when when you were heading up the pack, uh, that was a big, big deal. And uh, we made a lot of great relationships. And hopefully, um, hopefully by the end of this year, if we go back to Washington, we can really get our foot back in the door and and see things the right way. 100%. There's nothing more important than you having relationships with those that govern you. Yep. Um, you know, we talk about it in, at, at, at the federal level, and, and these are things that are happening in D.C., but it's happening in your state. It's happening in your municipality. You know, the one thing that I would encourage every one of you to do, right? And, and grassroots means grassroots. Start where you're at. Build relationships with your with your local, whether it's your zoning director, whether it's your mayor, city council, all the above, right? Let them know who you are. Let them know what you do, who you employ, what your business is all about. Build those relationships because guess Ultimately, who become the congressmen and congresswomen of the future? It's it's that group, right? So if you're building relationships with them now, but but I'd also say they also they're the ones that are going to directly impact your lives in the moment, right? Let them have an understanding of of what it is that you do and why you do it and and what you're about. Sure. Well, Sean, we appreciate it. Jeff, you got anything to add? While you're awesome. No, that's so great, Sean. I, every time I learn and I get, I think I just man, there are so many things I could be doing to make sure that I'm being proactive in my community and in those areas that matter. I probably can't, you know, do, I can do a little bit here in DC to help change and affect it, but locally so much stuff could be done. So Sean, we look forward to seeing you out in Vegas in a couple of weeks. Really excited about it. Why here Payer United Summit is uh, coming on strong. And uh, for those of you that are are interested and haven't signed up there's still opportunity to do so it's you know two weeks from today we'll be two weeks uh, from today and we in class we'll have a, a couple of uh, cheap hotel rooms in the back pocket so if you need something reach out to angela snow and we'll we'll get you hooked up sounds great thank you sean hey sean thanks See for you having me dealers helping dealers please leave us a review and subscribe the independent dealer podcast